Everyone experiences failure. My colleagues and I at The Globe and Mail are not an exception. I walked around our newsroom the other day and asked your favorite Globe journalists to tell me about some of theirs. I, what felt like my biggest failure growing up was that I failed every single stage of the driving test process. Like I failed the written test once, I failed the first row test once, I failed the highway road test <laughs> once. It's like every few years it was just this like really massive, what felt like a huge failure to me. But uh, for my parents, like I'm hitting 30 and my parents got married when they were 27. So when I turned 27, for them, me not being married at 27 was like a big deal. Okay, so I think I'm the queen of failure. And uh, in particular, I think back to my 20s and 30s. And the reason I think that I was a failure at that time um, is because I think I failed to live in the present. Think about tomorrow, think about the future, live in the future. But then all of a sudden you wake up and you're 48 years old and you're like, I haven't done anything interesting. <laughs> so <laughs> this is why people have midlife crises. <laughs> but the thing that makes failure so fascinating is that it's usually subjective. Some things won't seem like a failure to anyone but you. I think this applies to our final guest this season. My experience with breast cancer uh, for me was a big learning on the failure side. Mm. I know it sounds funny because I think to some people getting cancer is not a a moment of failure. Uh, But when I got it, it did feel like that. Welcome to Better For It, a business podcast from The Globe and Mail about how our failures shape us. I'm your host, Tamor Durrani. This week, my guest is Sylvia Ng. Sylvia is a true veteran of the tech world, having worked in senior roles at companies like Google, Shopify, and eBay. She's currently the CEO of ReturnBear, a Toronto-based startup that helps e-commerce entrepreneurs and large companies like The Bay make the return process less costly and friendlier to the environment. But despite her success, Sylvia has had to overcome a lot of hurdles in adjusting to life in the corporate world. She struggled with confidence, been told she lacks the gravitas necessary to inspire others around her, and generally doesn't think she fits the mold of what we expect from a tech CEO. Sylvia is also a cancer survivor, an experience that she feels has made her more resilient and inspired her to found Amadira, a company that provides customized gift boxes to those battling cancer. Today, Sylvia and I talk about what she learned working at some of the biggest companies in the tech sector, why being naive can sometimes work to your advantage, and why Elon Musk should not be the template for every CEO. First of all, thank you so much for being here, Sylvia. Um, You've had an amazing career sort of working at some of the biggest companies in tech as well as smaller startups that you've led. I'm curious what led you to the world of uh, tech startups initially? Huh, it's a good question, because I don't think growing up, I ever dreamed of being in tech, like it wasn't a a career path that I was just trying to push myself into. Mm -hmm. Um, I've always 
loved art and also loved science. So I was always dreaming of something that was at the intersection of those two things. Uh, but what happened was I ended up studying at the University of Waterloo this program called Systems Design Engineering. So if it, you're not sure of a, a specialty, that was a great program for you to kind of dabble in a lot of things and see how things connect together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a perfect program for me. Uh, but because of the co-op program there, what happened was I was there during the tech boom, and I got placed into internships at tech companies. And at the time, software and the internet was obviously a big thing. And so I got uh, a lot of jobs in the coding realm uh, without really seeking it out. Uh, And then by the time I graduated, I had essentially two years of work experience under my belt that just lent itself really well to staying in tech. And what happened then was I started getting to data analysis a lot mm. and found that I really, really liked that. So when I was looking for jobs out of graduation, I ended up doing that, which then led me to working at places like eBay and Google, more so on the lines of, of data uh, and analysis. So what time was this around when you sort of started first working for the companies that you sort of mentioned, like Google, eBay, Shopify, that kind of a thing? Uh, this Well, eBay was probably around 2007. Google was later on, maybe 2012. You're testing my memory here now. No, I'm just, I'm just sort of wondering, <laughs> um, you know, when it, when it kind of was, because I know that that's, that's a very interesting time when you sort of compare it to now, right? Like we're, mm. we're kind of going through a very different time in tech now. And so I'm sort of wondering what kind of contrast you've seen over the years with those companies and, and looking at them sort of in their, with their trajectory. Hmm. Yeah, it's been a long time. Like I feel like when I was at at eBay especially, it felt super exciting in that they had defined so much of what I believe to be the underpinnings of, of how you do internet marketing, mm-hmm. right? In terms of how would you run ads on a marketplace? How does a uh, marketplace generally work in the dynamics of um, a two-sided marketplace, which now, you know, Silicon Valley has whole playbooks on, you know, how do you start a marketplace? How do you go from zero to one? Uh, but all of that, when I was at eBay, felt very new and, and nascent, and it still felt like we were trying to define all of that, that f- nowadays we would take for granted. You know, yeah, the metrics yeah. that you would look at for, for a marketplace, we take for granted. These, these are defined things, and we operate a certain way. So when you were at Shopify, which, as we know, is huge in the e-commerce world, how did that experience inform your eventual experience and work at ReturnBear? The two, of course, are companies in the same sector, right? Yeah, so I think I was very lucky in Shopify in that I got to work with a lot of early stage merchants. And so it allowed me to learn a lot about the challenges that you face as an entrepreneur, uh, and then also allowed me to help build some tools that would uh, help that uh, those problems that, that I was seeing. Uh, but I think the thing that I got the most out of it, you know, it's it's always like you think you're helping them, but they're also helping you. Mm. <laughs> I I got inspired um, by a lot of those entrepreneurs and seeing what they were trying to do. I got inspired about the 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 idea of being able to start a, a company and address the, the problems that you do see in the world, right? Mm. Um, yeah, a lot of the merchants on Shopify are not just there to be selling something. They started their company because they had a, a vision of something that they believed in. Right. It, it may be a new net new specific product. And you had Joanna on here um, before with Nix. Obviously, sh- she was selling uh, on the Shopify platform, but, you know, her, her product was something that she believed in and wanted to bring into the world. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, being able to see those uh, entrepreneurs fighting for what they believe in and the products that they want to bring out um, was really inspiring. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I know that, you know, even with Joanna at Nix, there were so many issues as she started out her company. 
in that episode of our podcast, Joanna told me there were so many men in the room, for example, who told her she wasn't working on a viable product, that it wasn't something worth pursuing. She kept having to explain herself over and over again, even when she knew what she was doing was working. Have you ever felt like that in your career, too? Yeah, I would say just being a woman in tech uh, and maybe even an Asian woman in tech has Mm. made me um, feel some of this over the years. Although I will say, I think I started my career being very naive. Mm. It wasn't until a lot later that, you know, in the industry had it had more more openness and transparency about these issues that I started looking back and realizing that I I had been the woman in the room without realizing it. Because mm. uh, even coming out of engineering school, it's not like there were very many women in engineering. Uh, my year at the University of Waterloo, there were four ladies in, in the computer engineering program, and I knew them all. Mm. So I think it, even from then, I well, I was used to men. <laughs> and when I was, you know, in in those earlier jobs, I was telling you about. I don't think I sat there every day looking at it. Uh, but later on, I realized, hey, actually. Maybe that these some of these issues that other people are talking about, I did experience. Yeah, I just wasn't aware. I was just very naive about it. So the ones that I have been now more vocal about speaking out um, with other women and also at events about is just a confidence issue. Hmm. I myself have been told by a lot of managers over the the years I need to project more confidence. Uh, I think my Asian upbringing also plays into this because you know I'm told to be humble. I was brought up to be a neat and tidy. Little lady, I think, you know, be in your corner. <laughs> yeah. Don't be too assertive with your views because yeah. <laughs> you don't want to, you know, step on anybody's toes. Uh, and I think that led to, in some ways, what comes across now as a lack of confidence mm. um, and wanting to be humble. So over the years, I've had coaches, I've had, you know, mentors, mm. managers who have told me I need to develop more gravitas, you know, CEO gravitas and currently and whatever Um, that means right like (laughs) well so i i think i personally have struggled with that what does Mm. what does that mean when you're coming to me and telling me i don't have gravitas i tend to think that i'm not acting male enough Mm. for the most part because that word to me anyway connotes a let me speak in a lower voice maybe more more like obama and (laughs) you know even in this podcast i feel like i need to be sitting a a certain way yeah 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 way more icon because you all have to have a podcast voice right like we all have to talk a certain yeah. way in order to feel like we're assertive yeah. whereas yeah I, i'm not authentically i am not i have started getting voice coaching and i've realized my cantonese speaking background mm. has played into this because i don't enunciate my consonants mm. enough uh and so i have had to really think deeper about what what it means for me to be a leader and in a ceo seat and do i really need to fit the mold that other people would project um, or advise that uh, that I fit in order to be successful. This might be a, a side note, but I have been looking at um, a lot of infographics actually about the leaders out there in the photos. Hmm. You know, like the you know prime ministers of the world or the leaders of the world, and you look at their photos. Yeah, most of them are men, but even the women, none of them have long hair. Hmm. So, like for me, these things have stuck. It's like, do I have to have short hair? How short does the have hair? Have to yeah, be? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Am I allowed to look more feminine in my role? Yeah. Yeah. When we ask women to fit into these molds, as you know, founders and CEOs of companies and businesses, do you think we're inhibiting the actual progress in the product or in the work? As a society, it's still happening today, right? Yeah, I think so. Because what happens is in the business setting anyway, we end up not talking about business, Mm. but talking about other issues. 
Right. Uh, and so then women in my position, we almost have a choice. It's like every conversation we have, do I want to make more business with you? Yeah. And actually go at the core of, you know, making change in the world and driving value? Or do I want to talk about the, the other issues that may be preventing me doing that? And it, it, it takes effort. Uh, how many hours do you have in the day uh, to be devoting to, you know, solving the, the other issues that might be in front of you? Or the actual core issue, which happens to be the And is that issue. your responsibility, right? Like sometimes it's a responsibility that's almost been just sort of placed on you without necessarily your voice in the matter that, hey, okay, I don't need to constantly be advocating for these issues, right? Do you feel like you have to be an advocate for them just because you're a woman and you're Asian and you kind of have to be that way? Yeah, I, I do feel like there's an obligation there. Mm. I mean, it's not that I resent that obligation. I'm, I'm happy to because I feel like we do need to make progress and someone's got to put in some hours. Yeah. I will say that it is tough, right? When when you're a mom already and you are running a business, there aren't honestly very many extra hours in the day. Totally, yeah. Um, and so where does that come from? Yeah, when I was at, at Shopify, I remember there were days where, because we, we were very active in, you know, trying to get more women into the workforce, which required women interviewing. Mm. But we couldn't get enough in a lot of times, you know, women's time. There weren't that many to begin with. And then in that case, how can we carve off more time for those women to interview when they have their full-time jobs already? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but also, like, it's not to say that the men weren't supportive. It's, it's weirdly, in those cases, it's hard for him to jump in because mm. we want to be representative uh, of uh, the women's voices inside of the company. So, yeah, I won't say it's a, a solved problem, but it's definitely <laughs> something that a lot of us are living. Yeah, day by yeah. Day. I think the media almost shapes our idea of how our typical tech startup CEO looks like. You know, they're brash, they're aggressive, they're big risk taker. There's this sort of version of that that's been put out there, right? I'm almost describing Elon Musk. Um, In your experience, is that accurate? And if so, how did you see yourself fitting into that environment? Well, I will say entrepreneurship does require you to take some risk. Yes. Uh, so if you're a complete, you know, risk adverse person, I would not say that necessarily you're going to have an easy time of it. Yeah. <laughs> in that, you know, it, it, it's going to be jarring for you. Um, but yeah, in terms of the what we imagine as a maybe more Elon Musk type persona and the very um, charismatic leader who's always beating on a drumbeat, I would say that there are plenty of companies that aren't led by those leaders, but they're mm. not as vocal either, right? We may not see them as much because they're not as public generally as figures. Yeah. Um, th- there's a mix of leaders, right? And for I think for our economy to succeed, we need a mix of different leadership styles and the mm. companies um, need to have that diversity uh, in leadership in order for us to succeed generally as a whole. What's your leadership style like? I would say, going back to the core thing is I am very authentic and very direct, uh, which hopefully you're also getting (laughs) through this. Uh, So yeah, so then I will say that a lot of the leadership style I ascribe to happens to be the values that I personally ascribe to. Authenticity being one of them, uh, honesty and and transparency uh, being closely related, and also very team-oriented, I will say. It bothers me a lot of times when we feature leaders on magazine covers and we don't talk about the team and the support that got them to that success. Mm. No one succeeds alone. Like, I don't know who's feeding Elon Musk, but like he has a (laughs) team of people behind him. Uh, And yeah, I personally, unfortunately, can't name any of those people. Mm. So 
yeah, yeah. For me, the the team is a very big factor for for me, and I think it for my leadership style, it's very important that it's not just about me, but also the people I work with and the value that they're all bringing to the table. Also, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of teams, you've moved from sort of big teams to smaller teams, right? So, um, you know, you were at some of the biggest companies in the world with within tech and, and just really in general, too. And then you started your own companies. Um, how did your time at places like Google and Shopify inform your desire and sort of the way that you carried yourself as an entrepreneur um, when you started your own companies? I learned a lot from those large companies. Mm. I mean, the great thing about being in those ecosystems is that you have such amazing people around you. And you just, especially when you're young, you can just soak it all up uh, and get all these ideas and also grow your network so that you have continually a group of people that you can tap into um, for knowledge, right? What are some of those things you learned there? How to approach mentorship, how to uh, give coaching, receive coaching, how to do a lot of product work uh, mm. in terms of product planning, uh, decision making, managing um, opinions and goals. What's the difference actually between opinions and and, <laughs> uh, and facts? Um, managing meetings mm. really well too, and just generally how to show up day to day with work mm. you know how do you keep yourself energized how do you get a pulse in the room of how everyone's feeling and and where everyone's at yeah the, i can go on yeah um, yeah yeah i mean th- that's more of the i think practical soft skills that are really important and then i also gain a ton of like very more technical skills as well you know mm. how to write sql queries for example mm. but uh, yeah well, actually my friends at ebay and i loved this we made rap songs out of our sql queries <laughs> <laughs> So this podcast is, of course, about failure and mistakes and sort of, you know, how we learn from them, how they shape us and that kind of a thing. I think failing has become one of those buzzwords in the tech industry for sure. Um, You know, taking swings, uh, failing fast, failing often, etc. But I'm curious how you view failure. For me... There's kind of two bends to it. There's the the personal side of failure and how how you yourself, especially as an entrepreneur or leader in a company, take the failure. Uh, and then there's also how the company in your team views that failure mm. um, and how they they are able to to take it. Because generally, for entrepreneurship, everyone will tell you this, right? You need to be resilient, and it's not about the failures happening. Because if you are trying, you're bound to fail. It's about how fast you can pick yourself up and how resilient you are Hmm. uh, over time. I had another um, colleague tell me the other day who's been in the industry for a long time. And he was saying the only reason that he he has been as successful as he has is he never gave up when everybody else around him over 20 years just kind of dropped off Hmm. in the industry. In his words, he was not running a company that was doing anything different. It's not your typical startup that you would say, oh, wow, you're doing something completely net new. He, he, he will tell you he was doing the same thing that everybody else was doing. The only reason why he won was because he stuck it out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so it is interesting like that. I, I feel like sometimes we forget that just that thing alone. Mm. Outside of all the other business drivers that people tend to look for, which is differentiation. Do you have the margins there? Is the market timing right? Outside all of that, if you just had time, 
and, t- and didn't give up. Yeah. That alone can get you to success. I, I want to sort of ask you about any moments in your career where you've navigated failure and, you know, mistakes in, in a really real way that you think it's important to sort of now learn from that. So failure, going back to my um, my belief that there's the, the personal part and then also the, the company part, yeah. at least on the, the personal part, I will share that um, my experience with breast cancer uh, for me was a big learning on the failure side. Mm. I know it sounds funny because I think to some people getting cancer is not a, a moment of failure. Uh, but when I got it, it did feel like that. Mm. It's like I failed my my family and I failed my colleagues for because I might not be around. And even if I am around, not in the same capacity. Uh, especially for my kids, it's like, what does it mean for for their mom not to be around? Mm. Um, I, mean, I worked so hard just to make things good for them, for me not to be around. That seemed like a, the most gigantic F-ups possible. <laughs> yeah. When was your initial diagnosis with cancer? This was six years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my kids were two and five mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, and when I first found out, I remember I was sitting in the park nearby work because I had been in such anxiety on getting results from these tests um, that when the hospital called me, I stepped out of the office because I was close to tears and I didn't want anyone seeing. And so I went to Clarence Park, which was by the office at, mm. at that time, and I sat on the bench and they gave me the news and I just remember like just losing it. <laughs> I was mm. in complete tears. Uh, and the little, poor lady on the phone was trying to tell me, you know, you know uh, the implications of what the next steps are. And I, I, I remember not taking any of it down. Yeah. Because later on, my husband would t- ask me, what did they actually say? And all, and I didn't remember any of it. Mm. I just heard that one, one word of, you know, your results are like this and completely just melted down. Um, but I will say in terms of learnings, I guess, uh, in terms of, you know, maybe tying it back to the, the entrepreneurship and the resilience, mm-hmm. um, the entire experience, not just the beginning part, but, but even up until today has made me more re- resilient mm. because I still get checkups. I got cancer really young. So I've, I'm essentially designated high risk for the rest of my life. And the resilience part that's coming is out is the fact that I have to face these tests way way more regular than I would ever want to. Yeah. Um and it's just forcing me to learn how to deal with my own emotions, dealing with my the unknowns at every point in time of whether this is going to be a good result or not. Uh and being able to go into hospital rooms where it's cold and dark myself and have no support there um and not break down. I want to ask about do you still view this as failure? Yeah, like I, I don't know if I ever felt like the the cancer itself was a failure, but me being in that state seemed mm. like a, a failure, uh, and so I still need to get over that now, right? Mm. There was a world, there is a world, right, where if I got that that news and took it in a much better state, I wouldn't need to cry in my mother in law's office, and I wouldn't need to be the burden on her in that 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 moment in time. Mm. That's the part where I, I really do feel like I failed, and mm. still do. Where um, does that pressure come from? Maybe my Asian upbringing, mm. I will say. Um, yeah, because, yeah, as a, um, well, I don't know how much of this is just my family. I, wouldn't, I don't want to generalize to all mm-hmm. of Asians. <laughs> uh, but in my family, anyway, the idea of, you know, respecting your elders and you giving back to them as they age 
is a thing. Yeah. Right? And something that I would want to hold up. You know, as my parents age and they retire, I would love to be in the position to be helping them. Um, but the idea that I have flipped that equation with my, my health status, um, yeah, it, it does weigh on me. Yeah. 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 I can relate a lot. <laughs> I can relate a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, how did that inspire your next moves? Like what happened after you got cancer? And then, you know, are you in remission now? Like how are things like now? Yeah, I am in remission now. Uh, so things are good, thankfully. But uh, yeah, I am doing regular checkups so that there's a um, a touch point there. Um, yeah. And in terms of what I did afterward, uh I ended up starting a cancer care box brand called Amidira. Because mm. when I first got diagnosed, the data person in me. Went like to, a true entrepreneur, you know? <laughs> yeah, I went to the library and got all the books on cancer that I can find. Then I went on to Google and got all the research that I could read, peer-reviewed or not. Um, and from that, I just learned so much about these complementary therapies, uh, about health in general. And so when I finished my treatments um, around two years ago now, uh, I decided to spin up a Cancer Care Box brand to push that information out there uh, if there's other people like me who are data junkies. And want mm -hmm. that information, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, what does it mean to be doing contrast therapy or water therapy alongside your, your treatments? And, you know, massage has been proven to be really, really good. Touch therapy is really, really good uh, for health in general, not just for cancer patients. Um, so, yeah, I, I really wanted to push that knowledge out there and share what I could with the world. Uh, and that came in the form of care boxes with uh, items, but also descriptions of how these things could help. Hmm. What advice would you offer to a young person that's desperate to make a name for themselves at a massive tech company like that? What are you making a name for? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I you have to laugh because I get asked this question so many times. But by individuals looking for mentorship in their career. Um, and usually when I ask that second question, unfortunately, a lot of times there isn't an answer. Yeah. Or what problem do you want to solve in the world? Uh, because if you solve that thing typically if it's a large enough problem you will be rewarded however it is is it the compensation you're looking for the title that you want the, the recognition that stuff tends to come after you've solved that problem but if you don't know what that problem is that that recognition isn't going to be easy for you to find because you, you now you're trying to get to something without knowing the, the path yeah you know? but that then if you had to ask me what have I learned over time, especially being a woman in tech, one big thing that comes up over and over again is to not be a victim. Because mm. I think a lot of people ask me, how did I get to the success and being like, you know, you are a woman in tech and an agent at that. Like, how did you get here? And you know how I told you I went into it being very naive? I think what that resulted in was that I never approached going into meetings or being in that situation as a victim. Mm. I didn't know it. Like, it's so, I mean, it's serendipitous. It's not like I planned it out that way. Um, but if you're not a victim, then you see way more opportunities. You're not all there trying to, you know, question everything happening around you and wondering whether, you know, you're being passed for promotion because of some, because of your skin color or your, your gender or, you know, did that person over there was that a microaggression or because your whole day and your mindset is set in that victimhood, then mm. you can really fill up all of your mind share and you lose the opportunities to actually lose the space to look for the opportunities uh, to actually do the things that you want to do, right? Solve the problems, like going back to my whole thing about solve the problems before you and make that impact so that you can progress in your career. Mm. Um, 
it's、mm. hard because once you see it, it's hard to unsee it.、Uh, but I think society yeah, also、it. makes you feel like a victim, though, right? Like it's kind of like you're constantly made to feel that way, so you kind of start putting yourself under that umbrella as well, right? That、mm-hmm. this is how I'm supposed to navigate the world as a victim. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's being able to, in some ways, ignore that. Yeah. Yeah.、Uh, and still go in with the rose-tinted glasses, like they yeah. say. Yeah. 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 On the flip side of that, what advice would you give to someone who is an entrepreneur and wants to start their own company now? Yeah, understand the risks,、mm. and then yeah, brace yourself to be resilient after those failures. Is that something you've sort of made sure you've kept in your career too? To take a look at the risks. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. <laughs> <laughs> Are you constantly always thinking about that? I, I've been told through all my coaches、uh, when I do those enneagram tests that I'm a self-preservationist.、Uh, so I think that could be a part of my. My personality. I wouldn't say I look at like I don't go to into my day looking at risks here and risks there, but it's just、um, I I think just starting a business is such a big thing. Yeah. That if, if you don't look at the the potential downsides of what you're doing, you could you could get caught. Yeah.、Right? Yeah. A lot. I do come across a lot of entrepreneurs who are so excited, which which is great, right? They have a dream. They're gonna go after it. You know, they're gonna do it regardless. You know, if you're so caught up in that moment and the excitement, it's very easy for you to lose sight of okay, what of my personal money am I putting on the line for this?、Hmm. What am I risking of my family's time because they will get dragged. You will, you know, have implications on on them somehow.、Uh, it's just understanding all of that before you going go in, and then ideally even you know sit down and have those chats with the people around you, with your friends, with your family, who are likely going to be impacted, and make sure that they are also aligned with that that journey that you're about to go on. Yeah. Do you have any regrets? Looking back at your career now, my boss at、uh, Shopify, Craig Miller, someone who I'm, who I actually love,、uh, I have loved to work with, and has given me a lot of mentorship. He used to say this one thing that I also hold really dear,、uh, which is that you can't achieve big things without being a little bit naive about what it takes going into it,、mm. um, because otherwise, who, who's <laughs> who's giving me that Joe Schmuck to go and put themselves on the line to? To do something that looks impossible,、mm-hmm. right? You have to be a little bit naive about the impossibility of it, and also、mm-hmm. a, bit, a little bit naive about your own capabilities. Thank you so much for being here, Sylvia. This was great. Thanks for having me. That's it for season one of Better for It. Thank you all so much for listening. In. It was my first time hosting a show like this, and I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I have. Better for It is produced by Kyle Fulton. Our executive producers are Kieran Rana and Alicia Sani. If you like this season, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with all your friends. Until next time, you can find more business-related stories at theglobeandmail.com, and you can listen to all our episodes on your favorite podcast app. I'm Tamor Durrani. Hasta la vista, baby. 